the the one weakness that I see from the Asian culture that we have been given from the American culture is that we need more swag. Like we're too quiet, we're too humble. We don't brag enough. When we when we pitch, we actually say facts. And even after we're successful, we don't do it. Again, it's because of our culture to lay low, stay under the radar, don't make a big fuss about it, don't brag. But then we don't have the, the role models for you guys and for college kids and high school kids that say, whoa, I want to be like that. Hey, everyone. This is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Dave Liu. Dave is the founder and managing partner of Hyphen Capital, a syndicate that invests in pre-seed companies founded by Asian Americans. He is also a seasoned operator who spent time at Yahoo, eBay, and Cisco, and a serial entrepreneur who co-founded Paired, a staffing marketplace for the restaurant industry, and, and FanPop, a bootstrapped entertainment website with 35 million plus monthly visitors. He recently rallied the community around an initiative to publish an open letter in the Wall Street Journal in response to an uptick in violence against the AAPI community. In this episode, we spoke with Dave about conflating what he thought his parents wanted for his career with what he truly wanted, how he broke out of that thinking to start his own company, why it's crucial for Asian American leaders to advocate for themselves and have more swag, and encouraging the next generation of AAPI entrepreneurs to overcome the bamboo ceiling by building their own houses. Dave, thank you so much for coming on with us today. We are incredibly excited to have you with us today. How we'd like to start off this podcast is actually by asking what your favorite dish was growing up. It can be something your family cooked. It can be takeout, anything really. <laughs> what was that for you? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was a very simple dish. I like really, even though I'm Taiwanese, I love uh, juk. So it's a Cantonese dish. It's just kanji, very simple. My mom worked in New York and she would haul back from Chinatown. That stuff I was addicted to. So the preserved egg and pork uh, was always a good one. But I think my mom's way of showing how much she loved me was hauling that stuff back from, from like an hour and a half train ride just because it was my favorite dish. So yeah, that, that would be it. Yeah. The Asian way of showing love through hauling yep. food, <laughs> through cutting fruit, <laughs> right? Yeah, yep, exactly. <laughs> Definitely exactly. relate to that. Definitely relate. Yep. And you're actually in Taiwan right now on this call, which I is am. super exciting. I mean, the, the like night market, the food scene there is amazing. What are some of the, the highlights of your eating journey there? Yeah. No, I mean, Taipei, is, it, it doesn't get the recognition, and Taiwan in general, the foodie map that it deserves right now. Like Michelin only showed up here two or three years ago, but from street food to, you know, fine dining, like the scene here is really blown up. I've met Italian chefs, Japanese chefs, they're all French chefs, they're all here now starting, you know, all these restaurants. And, you know, Taiwanese people have always appreciated food from, you know, what, you know, a dollar you know, nice snack at the night market to the three-star Michelin, you know, did the fine dining meal. It's been amazing to see 
the diversity of food here. But honestly, during the pandemic, being able to come here and be in a place that you can actually go to a restaurant and eat is that's what I kind of cherish right now. That's something that I know a lot of folks back back home aren't getting. And so I think I've been able to honestly, my highlight's been meeting some of these chefs um, and and talking to them about their food, all kinds of food from from the from the tongyo being, I mean, the scallion pancakes to the great Japanese sushi meals, I've, omakases I've had. I've been very fortunate to be here to be able to enjoy that. And I feel bad making you guys, you know, get hungry from talking about this, but <laughs> I'm getting massive you'll FOMO. Be able to do. I know, take out, take out's not the same, sorry. <laughs> it's really not. And funny, so funny story, I'm in San Diego right now. And my biggest complaint is that there is a dearth of Asian food here, right? There's like a strip of road where there's some Asian restaurants, but you have nowhere the diversity that you'd see in New York or even like some LA, parts of SF. Yeah. So yeah, you're really giving me FOMO here, Dave. And I'm just curious, like yeah. what, and I think this has been written about a little bit, but I'm curious about your own perspective being in Taiwan right now yeah. and the differences you're seeing in the culture and the people within the country mm-hmm. and the government and how it's been such a nuanced perspective than what's been happening around the world yeah. when it comes to COVID. And for, yeah. for people listening to this later, this is we're, we're March 25th, uh, 2021. Yeah, I mean, it's a very unique time in Taiwan's history in that we have handled this better than almost every country in the world. And the people are wondering why. And I mean, we being, I was in San Francisco till November and I couldn't take it anymore. We had, you know, COVID and, you know, crime and orange skies from fires. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get out of here. I have two kids and um, they're driving me insane. I got to be <laughs> somewhere else. And then coming here and having that, weight and burden lifted, all those things just kind of go away because I can walk in outside, walk into a restaurant, walk into, you know, go to a concert, go to a nightclub, you know, all those things. Not that I'm going to a lot of nightclubs, but, um, but, but be able to do those things. It's just been really freeing because that mental load of not being able to do those things anymore, seeing friends, getting coffee, something as simple as that. It's amazing being able to go, you know, just see people whenever you want. You know, there's a bunch of us called, you know, they call us COVID refugees here from the States, a bunch of my friends that are all kind of escaped to here for the safety, we've noticed that, you know, the the communal aspect of caring for one another and respecting one another and just honestly care for yourself too by wearing masks, even when there is no COVID cases. I mean, that's, it's huge to see people don't even think twice about it. It's not a big deal here. It's like, Hey, for the, for the common good. And I think that's part of the Asian mentality. Like we are not individualistic. We're very group community oriented, family oriented. So we care about one another, but you know, there's also the, the the unsaid aspect of shame that, you know, you don't want your neighbors to, if, if you get other people sick, you will be shamed and they will put you, you'll be on blast because you did not, you, you weren't careful about it, you did something stupid. And so that aspect is very real here too. But I think those things combined have made everyone really respect one another and make sure that we take care of each other. So I think we've been uh, spoiled so much that after nine months, in the in the states with it uh, and being like the past past few months without it it's been like totally unreal to be able to go even on small vacations to places and feel safe yeah and so interesting how this divergence in culture has led to really like a split in pandemic avoidance right like obviously taiwan is doing so much better in terms of cases and and everything than than the us is and i want to draw a parallel yeah. here dave to you know, the divergence between cultures in your upbringing as well, yeah. right? Similar to yeah. how in Taiwan and, and US, you're seeing these like very market obvious divergences in collectivism, caring for neighbors, caring for others. I'm yeah. curious for you, when, when you're growing up, what kinds of values were 
imbued in you. And and I really want to dive into here how these values have perhaps accelerated your personal and professional Mm -hmm. growth, right? Because it's all contextual, but at the same time, how some of them might've hampered some growth and what are some values that you've kind of had to unlearn over your life. I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the hybrid kind of experience that we have, unique to us, very much has kind of both shaped and hindered a a lot of my career and growth development. I was born in Queens in New York, and then I grew up in New Jersey. When I was little, I was raised in a part of New Jersey called Somerset. And the school was mostly African-American. My my friends were mostly Black. And, you know, there were some white kids, but I was the only Asian kid in, in the class. And that stood out. I mean, as a little kid, you just point out, you just know what, you just see what's different and, and you go there. So I had to, I'd get in fights, but it'd be like, the only way to really survive this was to earn respect from the other kids by like, not just fighting, but being really smart and quick-witted. So I learned to kind of just come, my, my comebacks and insults and other stuff was just really, I had to be really sharp. And that's when I earned the respect of all the other kids. And then, you know, that's how I survived that whole thing. Cause I could have been easily beat up every day cause I was the only Asian kid. But, you know, my parents didn't like how, like what was going on. And like, I was talking all sorts of smack and talking back to them. So they weren't happy with that. So they moved me to a, a, another area that was more diverse. I wasn't the only Asian kid anymore, but it actually uh, good for me because I was able to find my identity a lot earlier than I know uh, many, many Asian American kids have growing up. It's like we had an Asian club. So, and there was like a lot of people in it and I had like a lot of Asian friends. I also was very fortunate to be in a diverse area where I had a lot of, you know, non-Asian friends. My closest friends were Black, Haitian, Pakistani, like Jewish. It was it was amazing. Like I was very fortunate to grow up with that. But seeing that and kind of being having that global worldview of different cultures, it allowed me to contrast the different things I liked about different cultures, you know, whether it be like I looked into Islam and, and tried to study Islam to try to find out that would be for me, went to small groups. I mean, it was more the where else you get to, to experience and learn about all that. So early on, I think, you know, I was proud of being Asian. There was a Taiwanese community that I could go to camps and other stuff, but I also kind of, you know, was raised, I mean, in a non-Asian world. So the kind of, uh, the baggage that I had was was also, I had a conflict of, you know, am I, am I American or am I, you know, Taiwanese or am I Asian? Kind of bigger picture for the, the kind of conflict between uh, East and West. It's actually, I found before it was hindrance, kind of jumping through hoops as an Asian trying to make my parents happy and proud. Like my whole, you know, up until my, like I was like 30, it was jumping from do well in high school so you can get a good college, get a good college so you can get a good job, you know, go to management consulting or, you know, banking or whatever, and then, you know, work at brand companies. So I did all of that. Went to, you know, went to Penn, worked at Yahoo, worked at, you know, consulting, worked in Apple, eBay, got to Stanford for business school, all these things that I was doing not for me, but I know it was almost like I was conflating what my parents wanted for me to me wanting that for myself and thinking that's what I needed when honestly, that wasn't what made me happy. And I could tell that wasn't what made me happy, but we're raised to kind of feel this guilt of our parents gave up so much for us and we owe them so much and you're indebted to them. And you see the pain and the tears and the swallowing of pride just to be in the States, like having them come to the States and have a lot of racist stuff said to them and they swallow their pride and keep their head down and lay low. And they're like, they teach you that same value of don't, don't cause trouble and just keep your head down, just work hard. Like, you know, we'll be successful. You'll be comfortable. You'll be safe. And then, you know, for me to go off and break that by going off and starting a company, my first one, 
And that was hard. You know, my, my mom, even after I was doing well and making a decent amount of money with my first company, she's like, when are you going to get a job at Google? I know people who've IPO'd and their parents are like, when are you going to go back to get a job at Microsoft and stop this silliness? I'm like, oh my gosh. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard, but that's the, the, the baggage that we have within us that makes it difficult to take risks and be ourselves and be, do what we want to do. And not every parent is like that. I think some parents are very encouraging, but you know, I'm investing in companies now and founders, they haven't even told their parents that they've started companies or they've already been disowned by their parents because they start quit their jobs and started companies. Parents are like, I didn't pay for you to go to Harvard and then go work at Twitter and quit your job. Our culture is very good at guilt and, and shame. And so I think it's, it makes it really hard until something snaps and you, you realize like, um, this is not for me, this is for, for you guys. And so that struggle is real as an Asian American because you know, the family, the community is what you feel indebted to and you want to, you don't want to mess that up. But the other side is we're Americans, we're individuals, we're cowboys. We want to go do great things. It's, it's kind of that back and forth between the tug of war between the two as you figure out your identity. And, and Dave, something that I am always confounded by is when, when when leaders and people that have gotten to some level of success because of this kind of like difficult peer pressure from parental achievement oriented, you know, work and you know, go to Stanford business school, like go work at Yahoo, like go, go through those hoops. And then, and then for those folks to like later realize that maybe that wasn't the best for the mental health and, and they could have yeah. like followed a different path. I'm always yeah. confused if like that, would you, would you have changed anything? Like, would you have not wanted to achieve all those things? Because part of me thinks like you may not have gotten to this place if you didn't have that mentality. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, how do you reconcile totally. that? You know, without those things, I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't have made the friends I made, the connection I made, the network I made. If I didn't go to, if I didn't have that first job, the consulting job, and then worked at Yahoo as a product manager, if I didn't see Jerry Yang around the corner from me, like be a role model, like when I was you know, 23 years old, I don't know if I would have started a company. There's a lot of steps that you can't say, like you didn't have would have gotten you where you are. But that being said, I think would I have changed things? I probably would have started companies earlier because I think the reason why I jumped through all those hoops was to the end goal of, I want to start my own company, but I kept telling myself, Oh, I have to get to some VP level or some senior exec level. But at that point, I mean, that's BS because you'll be older, you'll have a mortgage, you'll have family, you'll have obligations, your paycheck will be much bigger. The opportunity cost will be much bigger for you to take a risk. So there's so many reasons why if you keep going down that path, it gets harder and harder for you to actually take that risk. And I know a lot of friends who have um, regrets about not doing their own thing, but again, they're, they're very happy in, in where they are. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're very comfortable and, and everyone plays their own role. If you are really good at playing that game and you are crushing it at LinkedIn or, or wherever, we need Asian American leaders at those places. I mean, I'm not, if you are able to navigate the politics and put up with a lot of that stuff, then that's a rare breed. I'm not, I'm not okay with that. So like, you know, I'm one of those people that have to build and, and make, and I don't want to pull up, put up with a lot of politics, but everyone has their own gifts. So I don't, I don't discount all the experiences we have in adding up to where we are today. But if I would have to do something differently, I could have cut that off earlier. Like going to the extra brands didn't add anymore. So yeah, that's that's probably my two cents on it. And Dave, we talked about how part of the decision to continue accruing these brands, this prestige, this like, you know, blue chip resume was because you're almost like confounding what you thought your parents wanted for you with what you thought you wanted for yourself. Yeah. And I want to yeah. dig into this a bit, right? Because I'm, I'm curious about the conversation you had with your parents when you decided to hop off this proverbial treadmill and pursue your own path. Could you tell us what that, what, what that conversation was like? And also what, what your thought process prior to that conversation, to this jumping off point looked like? It was kind of from me personally, like trying to figure it out was not as it was a linear path. It wasn't like I jumped off cliff. I had started, I'd left eBay. I joined a startup in San Francisco. 
I started working on side projects. I mean, I think for us, we're, it's so ingrained in us to be risk averse that it's almost like you can't jump into the pool. You have to kind of go down the depths carefully because it's too cold. And you're like, oh, ease my way in, <laughs> like splash myself with water and then go in. But you know, for me, I was like, okay, I had to prove to myself that I'm not going to be broke and my, my life is not going to be ruined if I do this. I went from big company to a startup. I was like, actually, this is not so bad. Like, this is actually kind of fun. And then proving to myself with some projects on the side, you know, I'm making some money on this side project on this website I built. And it's like, oh, actually, if I scale this up, I can make more money. I won't be devoid of income and I can survive. But I think it's, we have to convince ourselves so much to get away from the, the conservative safe path that we aren't often willing to jump because it's kind of ingrained in us that that's not the way to go. So talking to my, you know, my mom at the time, because my dad passed away when I was younger, but I, I think talking to her about it, it was hard, but I also could always point to the fact that she started her own company too. So she can't really give me uh, crap about it, but she, of course, would still, she was still not happy with me starting a company, even if she, even though she did her own. So I was like, hey, mom, you, you inspired me to do this. And she's like, what can you say about, what can she really say about that? But yeah, I mean, she's a mother, she worries. I under, we understand where our parents come from. So we know what their biggest concern. So I acknowledge that, but I also, you know, have to remind them, I was like, mom, I got to where I am because I was able to do these things on my own. Like I, I got to these jobs, I got into Stanford, I got into all these places. If you, if you believe in me enough, I can do this too. And at the very worst, I can get, go back and get a job. It's not the end, like, it's not, there's always jobs. And that was part of the reason why I think I, I fooled myself into believing if I keep adding stuff to my resume, if I take a risk, it won't be really a risk. I can just go back and like, I have a great resume. I can get a job anywhere. But I, I don't know that, that I needed to do that. I think I was just kind of kind of psyching myself out for too long. Yeah, well, it's understandable, right? Because when you grow up in an environment where it's about security and safety and that's emphasized above all else because of that immigrant background, it totally makes sense that those are some of the things that would be prioritized. You had mentioned how for you going back to a big company, although it it is, you know, important that we do have leadership representation in those realms, it's it's just not you as a person, right? And zooming out a bit, I, I wanna I wanna tap into this metaphor of building your own house, right? Mm -hmm. Which you've referenced in your writing versus yep being in an existing institution and maybe playing by the rules for a bit, but ultimately trying to shatter that bamboo ceiling and rewrite the rules. So how do you, how do you think about that dichotomy, right? Like what are some instances yeah. in which one might be a you know better choice than the other slash how do we advance Asian American professionals and the narrative around that in general with both these approaches? The reason why I even talk about the bamboo ceiling is because I've seen it firsthand in Silicon Valley. I mean, the stats speak for themselves. 30% of these tech companies are, are Asian. And if you look at the exec ranks, there's barely any make it past like a certain level, like a director level. They get promoted at a 0.8 kind of, you know, index whites get promoted at three index. Asians 0.2, something like ridiculous where there, there, there aren't any uh, that are promoted. And, you know, honestly, the two companies I saw and I noticed that were, had some parity for Asians being promoted were Pinterest and NVIDIA, both of whom had Asian American CEOs. And so I, seeing it time and time again, where it's like, whether it be private equity firms, VC firms, hedge funds, others, you know, that's always the case. We, we do a lot of the work on the front lines, building the digital railroads and, uh, and other things for, for these folks who are making all, the, calling all the shots and have all the power and authority and make all the money, but we're still essentially labor. And so that frustrated me, that still frustrates me today, which is why I said, hey, let's build our own house and build our own businesses and build our own stadiums because 
at the end of the day, if you hit that ceiling, you have no one to blame but yourself that you, you know, stuck around and did that. If you stay under there and you're okay with that, that's on, that's on you. If you feel like you're frustrated, go do something about it. Right. So for me, the only way to change the game is if we actually build our own businesses where we can hire the diversity we want, we can promote who we want, and we're not trapped under that ceiling. There are organizations where they are completely open-minded and you see that they value diversity, but that's not the case from the majority of companies. You look at the Fortune 500, it's very white and, and very male. You know, there are a lot of us fighting to change that, but my fight is to encourage the next generation of folks to start their own companies so they don't have to even hit that ceiling. They never have to deal with that fight because it can be very frustrating. And then, like I said, you get to a point where you're like, hey, I, I, I make enough money. I'm pretty happy with my life. I don't need to fight. I don't need to push past the ceiling. Being a, being a director is fine. And that's fine. I, I have no problems with anyone who's making a good living and is taking care of their family. Like, I'm not going to uh, begrudge them of that. But for everyone else that can do it and wants to take a risk, we need more people to do that. For me, the, the, the one weakness that I see from the Asian culture that we have been given from the American culture is that we need more swag. Like we're too quiet, we're too humble. We don't brag enough. When we, when we pitch, we actually say facts. Other you know, mediocre dudes, they have no problems inflating stuff and making stuff up and acting like they know everything and can do anything. But we don't do enough of that. And even after we're successful, we don't do it. We might know that the you know, DoorDash founders or the Zoom founder and, and others are Asian, most people, and including you guys, probably don't know that the Peloton, two of the Peloton founders are Asian. Again, it's because of our culture to lay low, stay under the radar, don't make a big fuss about it, don't brag. But then we don't have the, the role models for you guys and for college kids and high school kids that say, whoa, I want to be like that. I have a funny story. I talked to a founder, a good friend of mine, who's a founder. He said he grew up in Michigan. Every like summer, I think there was a group of Chinese or Taiwanese American families that would get together. It was like a big conference. Like all the area, the whole areas, like Chinese families would get together and they had graduates who moved or came home to share as like a panel. And I remember he, he told me that he remembered because to this day, because it made a big difference in his life that one of the moms stood up and said, Hey, my kid plays too many video games. And one of the panelists got up. He's like, he went to Harvard and he's like, what, how are your kids grades? And she said, straight A's. And he said, what's the problem? And so he's like, I play video games. I went to Harvard. I started a video game company. I sold it for hundred million dollars. A whole audience of parents stood up and gave a standing ovation. And so it's like, his, he gets to use that to this day to his mom and say, like, I want to be that guy. And you saw that. And that's what I want to do with my life. And I think that's the thing. We don't see enough of the, that guy in our community. So even our parents can say, oh, you can make a living starting a small company and you know, going public or whatever it might be. You can be the boss rather than just being the line level engineer or product marketer or whatever. There's, there's more to life than that. So I think the more we have more swag, puff our chests up too, and be out there, the more the young folks will see, hey, like this is something that can be done. I, I, I love that story of the video game, the video game yeah. CEO and, yeah. and, and, talk, and talking to the parents and, and saying like, yeah. hey, there's a different path that you can follow. There, it's exactly. not, it, you don't have to follow the same traditional paths that you know, like the, the parents may know because that's just what they grew up with. Yeah. But, yeah. Now, but, now, but now we're seeing kids in our generation and, and even a generation older going off and being entrepreneurs, like hell, like being like YouTube stars and like just like making a living and making a crushing. And so like, you may as yeah. well, like it's a, it's a branding issue. It's like, how do yeah. we, how do we make sure that these stories are also highlighted and make, make sure like people like yourself, like you can, you have a platform to speak on and, and you can say like, there's a different path, not only for the people that are following the path, but the parents of the people that are following the yeah, path. Yeah, true. They just need to those, see it. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. They just need to see it. You know, Dave, one thing, one thing that you spoke about is like, is building your own house and, and, and building your own community. One thing that I always try to think about, and, and I know Angie does as well, is like, wh- how do you build your own community in your own house mm-hmm. while concurrently leaving the doors open to people outside of the community? And, and specifically those that are also underrepresented because sometimes like maybe those two, those two things aren't mutually exclusive, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering how you think about that. Yeah, because the last thing I want to encourage people to do is just build a bunch of Asian houses, right? Like we, should, we don't want that. Like that's exactly what we're, we, what we, we we're fighting against. So I feel like there Asian cultures do have a lot of empathy for, for other cultures. We are always aware of someone that doesn't fit in or is kind of like if, if someone feels left out maybe it's individualistic that I feel this way but I've always been a, a proponent for you know fighting for injustice and this is you know having Asians start their own companies is part of a reflection of that I feel like there is a lot of social imbalance and that's why I encourage them to do that you know with hiring with making sure as long as if people are aware of that we lift all boats when we can actually hire like help support invest in all communities, then we don't have to deal with the mess that we're dealing with right now with all the Asian Asian hate crimes. You know, one of the things that I don't want to see happen is that our parents may be guilty of too, is that they did keep their heads down, but they are very much looking out for their own households and their own families and their own communities, um, but not bridging that with other cultures and communities as well, as much as they could. So, you know, not being insular. Again, we're Asian, but we're American. And we have to recognize that that doesn't look one color no matter if it's not all white, if it's not all brown, it's not all yellow. But I feel like our generation, your generation, even more so sees the value in that and the power in having the diversity and how much more effective you can be when you have that. But it requires bridging cultures and actually like committing to that because it's very easy to just like when I was at Penn, a lot of my friends are Asian. It's like, it's comfortable. And we have to be okay with discomfort because that helps us grow. But honestly, for the for the shareholders and stakeholders, it's always better to have that too. Because if you build an all Asian company, your consumers are not all Asian. Good luck with that because you're just basically limiting your market and you know your audience. So it behooves you to actually try to be diverse and to make the most you know comprehensive, accepting kind of culture as possible. Speaking of bridging cultures. Dave, I feel like there's no better symbol for that than the hyphen, right? <laughs> Which is actually your background right now and the name of your yeah. new fund, Hyphen yeah. Capital. I'd love for you to share a bit more about Hyphen Capital. What was the founding story? What's your vision behind it? Where do you yeah. see it going in the future? So Hyphen, I mean, honestly, I saw the lack of community between East Asians in in, in the Valley and startups. Um, South Asians have been really good about building community. The Jewish community, the Black community, like they help each other out, they support each other. But ever since college, you know, going to, going to Penn, you go to school and you see all the disparate groups of Asian ethnicities have the, you know, the Vietnamese society, Chinese society, KSA, this, that. It's like, we're all fragmented because, you know, we're very diverse and very different, but that led to not really seeing much of that community of founders in the Valley. And so I started uh, a group called Asian American Founder Circle. Started literally because I had a bunch of just like friends, random friends who were founders, but they never met each other. So I pulled together a dinner uh, in a mission at Limon and you know, there was eight of us and we just started getting to know each other. You know, Eric Wu from who started Open Door was in that Kevin Chu who has a building on the Cal campus now was in that dinner. But we were all just, you know, a bunch of founders just getting started. Those were our previous businesses we were doing. But I th- I saw the, the magic and the power of, of that because we can commiserate. Like I said, all these experiences that we're talking about, if you don't have others, it's a very lonely journey being a founder. But if you don't have others who really understand what you're going through and the baggage of being Asian and dealing with this stuff, it's it's very hard. So I think it's for me, 
it was seeing that and thinking, hey, I should grow this. We added more and more founders and now we have over 300. But what I started seeing was like, the great thing about the community of Asian kind of value of community is that, and humility is that you saw people who were, you know, already IPO'd helping people who were just getting started with a pre-seed. Like people who were introducing folks to investors or angel investing themselves or introducing them to like people to hire. But it was beautiful to see how everyone really helped one another out. And that's what I really wanted to build that community. But I wanted to kind of over this uh, last year, you know, I saw with the bamboo ceiling essay I wrote, it kind of inspired me seeing that to, to try to encourage more founders to start more businesses. And so I want to put my money where my mouth was. I was like, hey, if I do that, can we syndicate, like codify how we're seeing the more successful founders help the next generation of younger founders and, and help them invest in them? So for me, it was about kind of building that bridge for, of capital for those folks and actually really helping them with, with money. That was supposed to only go within the community, but my friend, Tracy Chu, she didn't realize this essay was supposed to be just for us and she tweeted it and she has a hundred thousand plus followers. So once I was out there, I had to write a, you know, I wrote a quick LinkedIn post and a Twitter uh, thread and they blew up. I had over 200,000 views on, on LinkedIn, 300,000 now. And then, I mean, the outpouring of interest from founders to LPs, investors, it was crazy people, hedge fund managers, doctors, surgeons, lawyers, like everyone saw the value of this mission. And I, I mean, I was like, whoa, this is, was really unexpected. If, you know, if I had no idea that there was this much of a need, but it really resonated. The messages I got from people who like read the essays and read the mission of Hyphen, they're like, wow, this, why hasn't this existed before? It, it meant a lot to me because it meant that th this, you know, this had legs, but also that this would be really meaningful if, if, you know, I could pull this off. So since then, I think I've close, deployed close to like $4 million in, in capital to a whole bunch of founders. And it's been really amazing to see. Um, and it's not, again, it's not a formal fund, it's a syndicate. So it's a, a lot of all these angels who have done really well um, and are, are wanting to invest, but also people who are just product managers and, you know, people like you who are investing at minimum a thousand dollars in every company, because it's not about oh, this is a bunch of rich people investing in like folks who are just starting. This is literally your peers who can invest in and back because we want the community to be backing them and seeing that that happen uh, in reality, not just, you know, the name. So some of my founders have dubbed us like the Asian Avengers that I've assembled, but it's, uh, it's kind of cool to see because the feeling of just getting, you know, getting a check is one thing, but having that force behind you and those, your heroes behind you and your role models behind you, I mean, that's another level. So I think, um, you know, I didn't find this mission. The mission found me, I say, and I'm really fortunate to be kind of in this position where I know so many people. And it, I guess it started a long time ago. I didn't know it evolved from this, but I'm glad it has. Thank you so much for coming on, Dave. It um, was, was a pleasure to have you. I want to learn so much more about Hyphen Capital, how people can get involved, yeah. how people can follow along. Are there any quick little plugs that you want to make before we yeah. end up here? Um, check out hyphencap.com, you know, Twitter, everything else, but um, hyphencap.com just to see, if you want to see the heroes and the Asian Avengers on one site, uh, that to me, it's really inspiring to just see them, like a, a bunch of them on one page, because most of them, most people didn't even know, like the founders of these companies or these, these execs were Asian. So these are the things, show your parents. I've, I've literally had founders send the website to their parents to show them and inspire their parents to say, hey, this is okay, mom and dad, like I can do this. Uh, these are the people that, are, that have done it and the, before me. And so I think I, I want everyone to feel like they they have that behind them. And so, yeah, if you're a founder, reach out, dave at hyphencap.com. If you're an investor and want to support this mission, reach out as well. Thank you guys for the work that you're doing. I think 
again, your generation, as I say, is doing a lot more to spread the word about this. I mean, there were no podcasts when I was your age, but <laughs> this is, but being able to see like leaders like you take step up and create content that really impacts a lot of people's lives. Having someone hear one podcast that changes the trajectory of their career, that's why I do this. If one person downloads it or hears it on Spotify or wherever, and they're just like, holy crap, what am I doing? Let me get off this hamster wheel. Or I'm not happy where I'm at playing the political game. I want to go do something else. Or, you know, I crushed it in life and I have money and I want to invest in like these, these other folks and like whatever it might be. Everyone has a role in this community. And uh, that's, that's my ask is continue to support one another and ask for help. We suck at asking for help. Like if, if you are an Asian founder or where, even if you're not, if you're working at LinkedIn, like you guys too, ask for help. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. We're raised not to ask for help because it's like a pride thing, but that's weak. Like I think asking for help is how you get ahead. Everyone else helps other, everyone else out. We need to help each other out too. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.